What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We've just celebrated Father's Day and before that, Mother's Day, which can be fraught holidays for us adopted folks, especially when we don't know our birth mother and birth father, when they're just phantoms in our imagination. There's always a sense of being unmoored and without complete information. How does a sense of belonging develop? What is family? Where is home? Here to talk about it are two authors who are adopted, Jacob Taylor Moschetto, author of I Met Myself in October, A Memoir of Belonging, and Julie Ryan McHugh, author of Twice a Daughter, A Search for Identity, Family, and Belonging. Welcome, Jacob and Julie. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Hi, nice to be here. So, Jacob, you're calling from Colombia, is that correct? That is correct. I'm here in the city of Cali, uh, where I was born, and I just arrived about two days ago. I'll be here for a month. Oh, lovely. That's great. And this, this is your native country, so you're back on home turf, as it, as it were. <laughs> yeah, home turf. I like that. Yes. Yeah, I'll be here um, visiting biological family members um, and friends and former coworkers and former students. And I'm really excited to be here, even though it's COVID and we're still doing all the protocols for, for keeping everyone healthy. But, um, but yeah, thrilled to be back here. Good. Well, it's great to have you with us. Julie Ryan McGue, I think you're up in Michigan. Is that true? Uh, Diane, I'm in the Chicago area. I'd like uh, our friend Jacob, I'm getting ready to board a flight for a family wedding in Hilton Head. So... I'm sitting in a car, and it's raining like craziness here in Chicago. Aha. Well, I, think, I think we could even hear it. Um, this is great of you to make these Herculean efforts to be with us on Dropping In. This is the beauty of technology. I want to dive right in. First and foremost is um, Julie Ryan McGue. You are the pioneer and initiator and the person who reached out to me to engage us as a panel. And I just want to thank you and also applaud you for creating communities around adoption. Well, thanks, Diane. I uh, first became aware of Jacob's book about a year ago when it first came out, and I was immediately intrigued by his story because of the international aspect and also because he had so many issues in dealing with his um, ethnicity and embracing that which is something that I'm also trying to do with my Native American heritage that I discovered in the course of my search. Yes, that was a surprise. The one thing, um, and and yours truly, um, I was adopted from an orphanage in Germany. So while I don't have um, ostensible racial issues, I have the um, the cultural blending. 
But I, I couldn't help but notice in reading both of your books, which were great. Um, I, I have to say, I, um, I tore through both of them and w- were page turners. I noticed that both Jacob and Julie, you had the word belonging in your subtitles. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's go straight to this this notion of belonging. Um, We can telescope out and say belonging to a a culture, a a nation, a tribe. Um, We can also look at belonging as a personal sense of feeling good in one's skin or even in one's family. I'd just like to throw it out to you both. Um, How do you look at belonging? How would you describe it? Well, I can go first. I think one of the issues that I read in Jacob's book that also I mirror is uh, this conundrum of trying to belong to two families, knowing that Mm. you belong to the adoptive family in which you grew up and feeling deep connection to those folks, but then also delving into this other family uh, that you know historically you belong to, but you haven't developed deep relationships with. And it's like uh, a balance theme, trying to figure out, can you do both? And welcoming both sides of that family into who you think you are and reconciling it. And I think that is the deepest issue that adoptees face is, do I belong to both? Do I want to choose sides? Um, what does the family want of me? Do they want me just as much uh, as I want to get to know them? Jacob, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Uh, also, just to echo, Julie, thank you so much for connecting all of us. Um, no, it's, it's always fantastic to connect with other adoptees. And yeah, so again, just a big, big, big sincere gracias to, to both of you um, for this. Uh, Julie mentioned a really perfect word that I think is super appropriate for this. She said reconcile. Um, I'm going to celebrate that as well as offer navigate uh, when we talk about belonging. I think uh, I agree with everything that Julie just mentioned, um, but the navigation piece also is is a big one for me. Like Navigating these two families or in some cases more, right? Um, And trying to really look at who, who holds the keys to belonging in a family in this case, right? Who, who gives permission to and who, who do I feel like I can go to um, to give me the keys to, to, to step into that, that, that space of authentic and sustainable belonging, right? Like, so, so those are the questions that, that, um, that I think have been turning around a lot since, since, since the book and um, looking at how how is it my cousin here in Cali or is it my biological, is it my adoptive mother and back in Seattle? Um, who holds the keys to those belongings? Always like kind of um, just trying to understand who and why and when uh, the permission is given to, to, to belong. That's what I've been thinking about a lot. And I wonder um, myself whether or not the word uh, non-binary is applicable in the sense that the either-or becomes very onerous to try to um, balance an either-or equation versus a very fluid equation where it's almost kaleidoscopic and there are different needs that arise 
mm. biological different callings for adoptive and biological. And I also wondered, you know, the word that Julie used, I also think is operative is expectations because we're also mm. navigating yes. very, very pronounced expectations from both of those families, which let's face it, not all kids really have to do. We are very much adulting um, at a time when we're experiencing being a child all over again and finding biological family, but at the same time assuaging expectations and feelings of proprietorship from both of these families. Um, I wondered, there was one um, account of, of, um, that I read once that basically said, um, I felt like a tourist. I was a very accommodating tourist. I wanted to like my surroundings and the people who brought me in, um, but I always felt like a tourist. I mean, to me, that's a little stark, um, but I do, I do think that, you know, as much as we each of us have loved deeply our adoptive families, not just from a gratitude standpoint, not just from being thankful, but just deeply loving in an authentic way um, who they are as people. Um, and I, I wondered then, when we're talking about belonging, do you think that belonging is related to having information, to having complete That's a really interesting question, Diane. And I... I think where I'm at at middle age, I believe that that is true. Um, the folks that are lucky to be part of an open adoption where there is an exchange of information early on, or at least access to information, I think that they probably have a different sense of belonging. Um, the fact that Jacob's uh, background was cut off from him for so many years, and myself as well, there's this left um, feeling of wonderment and what if. And I think those hold you back from belonging. Um, I think that I would have been more deeply involved emotionally with my adoptive family if I could have said, um, this is my family, this is where I want to be. I, I know that I'm in the right place. But because I had no answers about where I came from, I think I was a holdout. I think I held back, um, and I regret that that was the case, because now that I have the answers that I thought, I am completely involved in uh, all of my family. Mm -hmm. It's a release. Mm. <laughs> and how about mm. you, Jake? Yes. Can, you, can you speak to that point? I think you really elucidated that point in your book that belonging and information are essential. They're components that are interactive. Yeah, no, completely. Uh, I think had it not been for the information, I still would, I think, be, no, I don't think I know, I would still be searching vigorously for that, for that sense of belonging, right? The information has, has been able to kind of, um, yeah, uh, I think release is, is, is the perfect word, perfect word there, release uh, a sense of, um, yeah, a sense of just tranquility. Uh, and without that information, I think I would still be running around like a chicken with my head cut off, trying to figure out uh, where exactly I was able to, getting back to that permission, like who gives me permission to belong here in Colombia or in Seattle or both or neither. Um, so yeah, the, the information I think is, is absolutely fundamental. 
totally fundamental. And I think so too. And I, and I love the word that Julie used in her book, going through hoops to get information that everybody else just has. Um, about mm, yes. about about our birth, our origins, our place of origin, and I really then connect it to belonging to the human race. Um, I had a sense of suddenly I belong to the human race. I had an equivalency with other people for whom it's normal to know where they where they came from. So there was like a dropping okay. into to humanity almost. Um, that, that at least I, I felt, and I think that you both reflected it in your more than wonderful books. I wonder if it's a good idea to give listeners just a brief synopsis. Julie, you've been with us uh, on Twice a Daughter, and that is just a fascinating, compelling story. Um, why don't you, Jacob, just give us a thumbnail so people understand that um, dichotomy Seattle and Kali um, let's get a little backfill for your story and where you are now in the process. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, backstory would be I was born here in Cali, Colombia, 1984. Um, and I was adopted by uh, a Caucasian family in Washington State. Um, not Seattle proper, but about an hour and a half drive southwest of Seattle. Um, since then, I've been back here. This is my eighth trip down here. Um, I've reclaimed the language. I'm actually a Spanish teacher in Seattle now. <laughs> um, and we can get into how language ties into this, too, later on. Um, I was able to go on a live television show here in Colombia in 2004. Uh, that was a suggestion from a taxi driver. Um, and then that same night that I went on the television interview is when a woman called um, saying that she was my auntie and she turned out to be who she said she was. So uh, all because of a taxi ride <laughs> and a tele random television interview uh, led me to my biological family, whom I'm really close to now and actually more close with my extended family here in Colombia than with my extended family back in Washington state. So um, I feel comfortable here. I feel happy here. I feel uh, productive here. And I definitely feel like I have a, a sense of belonging here. And in some cases more here than, than in Seattle. So that's a brief, brief uh, little synopsis there for you. The story is fascinating, and I love the kismet of going on live television and locating your auntie. But I really think it speaks to something larger, which is the sense of belonging that we get from our culture, from our ethnicity, and that it can transcend um, familial belonging. Like, you just want to put up a sign that says, it's nothing personal, but I belong here. I feel comfortable yes. in my heritage. Um, and, you know, the, the psychologist William Glasser um, spoke to the basic human needs. They are freedom, fun, which includes learning, power, love, and belonging. And this is just as strong a need um, as any. And from an ethnic and cultural perspective, we feel the blood of our ancestors moving through us. I strongly believe that. Um, you know, Rilke says they who passed away long ago still exist in us as predisposition, as a burden on our fate, as murmuring blood and a gesture that rises up from the depths of time. I think there's a way in which we have a, 
we have a cellular identity. I wondered, um, for example, Julie, now that you know that you are not as Irish as you thought you were, you celebrated that identity <clears throat> before, um, that you have also French and indigenous population. Um, have you felt identification with those cultures more as a result of knowing that it was, you know, pronounced in the background? Uh, I'll just share a, a quick story from my upbringing. Um, I had no idea, obviously, that I was um, a product of uh, a Native American as well as a family that was French and German, and they were farmers. Um, when I was a child, I kept wanting to be outside and garden. In fact, one house that we lived in, my mom let me carve up uh, a patch in the backyard, in the, in the back 30, uh, if you will, and I planted corn, and I planted vegetables, and all sorts of things. And she kept wondering at me, like, why do you want to do this so badly? I said, I don't know. There's something about being in the dirt, um, about seeing something grow, and I just feel this need to be outside. Um, and obviously now I know my, uh, my heritage is one of farmers and of indigenous people that love to be outside. My, I found out that my birth father uh, was a big hunter and a fisherman, and he taught my, uh, my brother that I met recently um, all of those skills. So it is exactly what you say, Diane, that those, that's baked into your DNA. And for adoptees, we wonder sometimes, where are these traits and characteristics coming from? And uh, yeah. we used to joke about it, calling it the mystery gene. And um, I'm grateful that I, I know where it comes from now. Always. And Julie, so eloqu eloquently put, we have to cut for a commercial right now, but we're going to come back with Jacob and Julie on this panel of belonging, identity, and transracial adoption. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. 
It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Jacob Taylor Moschetto and Julie Ryan McGue. We're talking about adoption, transracial adoption, identity, and a sense of belonging, and how these fit together with information. I think that this panel is such a well-qualified one to address the idea that many people just don't really realize the day-to-day implications of being adopted growing up. How you feel as a kid with a different color skin than your parents. Um, How you feel as an adult how you feel as an adopted kid in an an extended family that's rife, full of uh, biological children. Let's speak to that. I think, Jacob, it's probably your turn. Why don't you go ahead and and give us some of your sense of what it was like? Yeah, I think um, one of the one of the things that jumps to, to mind right away is a scene from the book uh, in which I'm in middle school and I'm in a family, uh, one of my, my grandparents' wedding anniversary. And we're in this fancy Italian restaurant and everyone in the room except for me is white. Um, and I at the time had this <laughs> pretty, pretty massive afro. Um, not the best uh, look for me, but anyway. Um, I walked over to get some punch for my table, which included my mom and my grandparents, the people who were being celebrated. Uh, so I wanted to get some punch for everyone at the table. So I got a tray of punch and I was walking back and some older man um, snapped his fingers at me and said, yeah, yeah, young man, when you're finished with that table, you can bring some to ours as well. And I looked and I thought, well, okay, <laughs> I think maybe, maybe he's in a wheelchair or maybe he has crutches. Maybe I, right. It shouldn't be too quick to react. Um, but there were no crutches and no wheelchair. Um, he just expected because, as I noticed later, um, the waiting staff, there were two black young men on the waiting staff, uh, the catering staff, I mean. And so he confused me with, with them, even though they had their work uniforms on and I was dressed uh, way differently than them. Uh, and neither of them had an afro. So it was just an interesting piece to say, wow, well, ah, that's, that's, why is that? And then I couldn't go back and, uh, to my table with my family and, and complain or talk about it or vent because uh, they wouldn't be able to understand. So there's multiple, that was just one example of, of growing up where I felt like I wanted to speak up, but then I couldn't because no one in my family, the people I was sitting down to dinner with every night, the people I said I loved and, and do love dearly, um, but they could not relate and they never could. And that felt isolating. It felt uh, infuriating. It felt, um, hopeless in, in many occasions. Um, so 
the day to day was 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 that uh, feeling very much a part of a family, a loving, caring environment in the home. But once I stepped outside, um, it was it was very different. They still acted, of course, like like we were a family, and I was their son, and everything in public, no, not a problem. But they didn't notice all the stairs in the restaurants. They didn't notice uh, everything that I had to notice. Um, and so I think that's that speaks to the day to day. It was just very isolating. Um, and trying to juggle that isolation with still feeling very supported and cared for as, as their son. So it's just very, very, um, very complicated, very complicated uh, experience growing up for sure. It's, it's complicated and it's confusing emotionally. You also didn't see a Mm -hmm. lot of examples uh, like yours outside of your home. Right. So you were also right. in a, commu- a community of, of ma- mainly white people. I also wanted to differentiate. I mean, now, okay, this was horrible. You received ethnic slurs, racial slurs. Um, and this sense, though, that you're also not actually black. I mean, you are Colombian. Um, so mm. there was a lot for you to parse then. Uh, how did that pan out? When did you start? I mean, what 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 frame of reference did you have to even refer to, to go to? How did you make that out? Or did you feel rather lost? Right, yeah. Um, so first I get to say that uh, I definitely have been comfortable in claiming my blackness now. Um, we know that uh, just being here in Colombia and, and around the world, the African diaspora is vast. We had millions of African slaves, well, enslaved Africans, brought here to Colombia. Um, so I, I claim my blackness and I'm proud of it and I'm happy to, to, to declare that today and tomorrow and, and forever. Um, the understanding though from my parents was that you're right, that they didn't, they didn't understand how I could be black because they didn't have the information that I have now, right? This was pre-internet, this is pre-blogs, this is pre uh, <laughs> uh, Wi-Fi and all these and the cell phones and all this, right? So they didn't have really the resources to, to unpack Colombian history. And so for them, I was quote-unquote just Colombian. Um, but that was, that was missing a big part of it. Because the world didn't see me as quote-unquote just Colombian. The world saw me as a black young man, right? right. And so um, I really felt like I needed to claim that. And so my reference points first was uh, Ken Griffey Jr. He's a Hall of Famer uh, baseball player for the Seattle Mariners. Um, and that was my only reference, though. So I didn't have anyone in my family or neighborhood or sports teams to say, oh, look, there's someone who looks like me. Let's go talk to them and understand what it means to be black in a white society. There was nothing. So I had to build that and seek that out myself with, with my trips abroad. It's almost like your identity is a is a construct. It's something that you have constructed, um, and and I think you have to go and find the pieces of yourself. I think also um, what I meant to say actually was that you you would be presumed to be African American. Of course, you are black. That's mm-hmm. um, you know, but but mm-hmm. the, but just the sense that the the cultural heritage is that much more erased because of an assumption. Mm-hmm that you're African-American mm-hmm. during that time. And then mm-hmm. in, the, 
in the home, you know, no matter how well intentioned, that there was a color blindness. So there was not an attunement to what you might be going through in your experience. Julie, you told me, uh, and that is extraordinary amount of of dissonance, uh, Jacob, to be coping with as a kid and adolescent. Julie, you told me a story um, that I, I found riveting about just the differential between being adopted and versus biological in your family one Christmas. Would you mm-hmm. reveal that? Oh, uh, I'd be happy to. It's, it's actually a scene that I'm uh, writing about and uh, uh, what I hope to be a, a second memoir about what it was like to grow up um, adopted and also a twin. Um, I, I did not remember this memory that I'm about to share, but it is something that I've talked about with my adoptive mom many times. Obviously, it hurt her deeply, and uh, one of the things that I do love about her is her ability to champion the underdog and certainly to be very protective like a mama bear about her babies. Um, My aunt was hosting us for a Christmas gathering at her home, one of my father's sisters, and there was probably about six to eight cousins at that point. There certainly were, are a lot more now. Um, there were, we were sitting around the Christmas tree, passing out the gifts that were under the tree. And my sister and I were the only ones to not receive something from the aunt that was hosting us. And my mom was very wise about it. She uh, quickly picked up on the fact that we uh, had been neglected And we were very quick to leave the party, and we found out subsequently that my aunt had deliberately not um, presented us with a gift like the other children. And we often talk about that. What was the construct there? Was she trying to say to my mother, I don't recognize these daughters of yours as part of the family? Was it it something else that had had stuck in her craw? And and obviously it was deliberate. So we still puzzle this. And it it definitely was something that was harmful in our family, and we were always on the lookout uh, for that to happen again with this particular family. Mm-hmm. It's it's just mm. pain. It's just painful to to hear about it, to visualize it, being the only two, um, and the innocence of of you know you're adopted. You you've done nothing to to incur this wrath, this this um, dissociation from a sense of belonging. Right. And, to, and to why hurt a child? Why why do that to a child who is very innocent and oblivious? Um, but to Jacob's point with his story, there are the people out there that are oblivious as to the harm that they make by a harmless comment, which what they deem is a harmless comment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, I want to go to the idea of um, coping mechanisms and how, when I know that you weren't aware of that, Julie, when it occurred, but, you know, there were times for both of you when you had revelatory information where your, you know, your mother first contacted you or through your aunt, um, you, Jacob, could get in touch with um, your mother, your biological mother, and there were these revolutionary moments and I had the sense that time slowed down, that there was almost a sense of like an outer body, out of body experience until you could process what was happening uh, in that moment 
Um, I think, Julie, you've had those as well with phone calls. Um, Jacob, do you want to uh, kind of address kind of this inner working of how it works when you finally get the thing you're looking for and how you process it? Mm. Yeah, no, sure. Um, Yeah, I think for me, the the moment that I really yearned for throughout my youth and throughout um, adolescence throughout everything was stepping through a door and meeting biological family members for the first time and, and that, that initial hug, which becomes, of course, so much more than just a hug, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it was, it was that moment. It was in 2004. It was here in, in Cali um, after talking to my aunt on the phone um, and her demanding, not asking, <laughs> demanding that I come to her place uh, that same night. I wanted to wait until uh, the weekend to kind of just process things. And she was really adamant that, no, we have uh, a cake. We have a bottle of rum. You need to come and meet your family now. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's do it. Um, so that for me was, was that, that moment. I think when you talk about out of body experience, Diane, I, that, that's the one that really, that I felt that in that moment, I was, I was, it was almost like I was a fly on, on, or a bird on the, on the wall across the street, watching myself go into that door, um, seeing not necessarily, I didn't, I wasn't looking for people who looked like me. And I think that a lot of adoptees chase that, but I wasn't focused on that. I was focused on being in a room with people who I knew shed my blood. Yes. And, and that for me was, was, it was, I had never felt so elated. So, so happy, so mm, so pure <laughs> in my life, right? Yes. So just to sit there, and then I was shocked because I couldn't, right? My language was still developing and, and these other things, but it was, that moment was, was, was golden. Uh, and then how, to pro- how I processed that was just, I stopped other obligations that I had in the city and, I, and I, I, I was volunteering at the orphanage that I'm from and I had to stop that. And just to be in their presence, every day and every night for the next three or four months was, was the goal. And just mm-hmm. to be there and soak it up. That was, that was it. And then after that, finding um, adoptee, a fellow adoptees, not only Colombian adoptees, but um, domestic adoptees in the U.S., uh, Korean adoptees, everything, um, just to find community uh, for opportunities like the one we're, we're doing right now, um, which has been mm-hmm. my way of processing, bouncing ideas off of and experiences off. Uh, with other adoptees has been yes. has been uh, fundamental for, for for me. Well, there's a couple layers there at least, and one is the layer of connectedness, the plasma connectedness that you feel when you're meeting biological family, and I think that then there's another then there is another um, a shared experience connectedness. Um, both are extremely profound so that when you're working with other adoptees or like when you went back to the orphanage, Jacob, Julie, you also work, you also are part of a support group for adoptees through, through your work since Twice a Daughter was published and your outreach and your, your community building, you've actually located half a dozen other pairs of twins that were adopted through Catholic charities. Can you describe some of the connectedness that you feel effortlessly with these groups that you work with? 
Uh, well, there's two points to to your question. The, the first part is um, the fact that I'm an identical twin, and one of the blessings of Catholic Charities uh, as an adoption agency was they had a policy of keeping twins together. So I had the fortunate um, childhood of being raised with my twin. Um, we shared so many experiences and adventures, and I and I do attribute my relationship to her in how I was able to deal with the many ups and downs of our adoption search. But that being said, um, as a result of promoting my book, um, I've had uh, probably five sets of twins that were adopted through Catholic Charities reach out to me, and I always wonder how many... How many of us could there be? Um, and, and so there, there's five that I know of right now, and we're, uh, we're trying to stay connected. And I, I'm sure there's more, and I'm curious to, you know, if any of the listeners um, uh, will, will make contact as a result of this conversation. So um, that's the second piece of um, being connected. And then the adoption uh, support group, also through Catholic Charities that I'm a part of, um, we have been virtual in our meetings, uh, but mm-hmm. religious and getting together every two or three, three months. And it's been impactful. I, I would give a plug for the virtual communication just because so many folks are dispersed across the country and now they're still able to connect uh, through one place, uh, which was the foundation of where we began, and that was St. Vincent's Orphanage in Chicago. And I do want to mention, um, Jacob, that there's a beautiful scene in your book about going back to your orphanage and um, mm-hmm. your Absolutely. feeling of it um, in the beginning. And I had that same experience uh, with my sister. We went back to St. Vincent's in Chicago, and we did it together. And 201, the oh. adoptees that I'm in, in contact with, talk about how important it was to go back and to see the place where they lived for the beginning of their life that really there was no history of. It predated their relationship with their family, um, and certainly no family of origin was there with us. So I think that little snapshot of time that we are able to imagine when we go back to our, our orphanage is also very impactful for the adoptee. You know, we're connected by a sense of um, survivorship, for one thing, and also a spirit, a spirit of look at the resilience that we've uh, manifested, look at our ability to create and to compile an identity for ourselves, to belong in many worlds, in several families, and also to to get a kind of a spiritual, it is a spiritual connection, without any stratification. When you went back to the orphanage, Jacob, I I loved that scene as well. It was a real touchstone for me. There was no stratification. There was no gentrification, no educational background, no socioeconomical, no racial, no nothing. It's the bond of the experience. And it's intensely, mm-hmm. it's intensely profound. And Julie, you're right about the internet and connecting us through this broadcast. We're speaking to people worldwide. We have many listeners in China and in the former Soviet Union. So it'll be very interesting to see um, what happens from this outreach. We've got a pause from a commercial for a commercial break now. We'll be back with Jacob and Julie for more on Dropping In. 
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa, Alexa, or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Tune in every Friday to get your weekend kickoff early. Join the legendary G. Keith Alexander for What's Hot Harlem America. The flagship show of the new Harlem America Digital Network has something for everyone. From the latest in entertainment to empowerment, health and wellness, and more, we'll bring you a variety of fresh viewpoints, voices, and ideas. What's Hot Harlem America with G. Keith Alexander can be heard every Friday at 1 p.m. in New York and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Jacob Taylor Moschetto and Julie Ryan McGue. Jacob is the author of I Met Myself in October, a memoir of belonging, and Julie Ryan McGue wrote Twice a Daughter, A Search for Identity, Family, and Belonging, and is at work on a next book of coming-of-age stories about her twin and, and surviving um, and thriving in their family. I want to talk to uh, the point about revealing um, cultures. We, ostensibly, the thing that we have as a panel in common is adoption, but it's a real eye-opener to read each other's stories. I enjoy it so much and feel so grateful to have read these books. I want to talk to you, Jacob, about one of the things that you dismantled for me, which is the stereotypes around Colombia, even as a place, that it's rife mm. with drug, drug lords, that there's all kinds of violence, that you have no hope of a peaceful existence, when in fact, you brought us the hood, the neighborhoods, the community, the people, the warmth, the experience of communally having food, no differentiation between who was what to whom, a kind of a one big family feeling. How did you feel about opening up the world of Colombia to others? And what's been the feedback since you wrote this book? Yeah, great, great question again. <laughs> um, I think I love how you put that opening up Colombia. Um, it's been fascinating to see over the last, especially the last seven, eight years, how how many tourists I see down here um, during my trips now, um, and especially here in, in the city of Cali. It's a city of roughly just about three million people, right? So just that alone is, is, is a big thing for a lot of my friends in Europe and the States. 
um, that they didn't really realize. Um, the media, I think, has been a little bit cruel <laughs> to Colombia and Colombians. Um, I've been stopped at the Canadian border uh, a couple times and detained uh, in Miami um, because I was bringing back coffee, but I was coming from Colombia, and so the perception was there was something more than coffee in my, my coffee bags. Um, and I think it's been really fascinating and thrilling, honestly, for me to be um, a little kind of mini ambassador to, uh, of Colombian culture and Colombian people in Seattle. Seattle is not exactly, it's not like New York or Miami where we have tons of Colombian restaurants and cafes and adoptees and immigrants. Um, Colombians are still, there's a significant amount now in Seattle, but um, still knowledge about the country is still really limited. And so um, with my Spanish classes, with my history classes, um, I've been able to kind of open um, people's eyes a little bit to the reality of, of the country rather than just um, what people have seen in narcos and other places. All right? there's, there's so much more to the country. Like you mentioned, the people, I think especially here in Cali, are some of the warmest people and, warm, and most welcoming people um, that I've ever met. And I've been fortunate enough to be in quite a few different places for very amounts of time. Um, and then I think the second part of your question was which part again? Was it the, I forget which part was the second part there, Diane. I think the well, opening, you, were, you were finding home and I wondered, um, <clears throat> you, I think you've basically addressed it um, in terms of what we will want to hear, you know, what the feedback has been. But I also <clears throat> want to, I also want to address something that it seems to allude to, which is imposter syndrome. You no longer have to... Right pass for something else right. um, and Julie you've also talked about this I think Jacob you're you're just your opening up of this world to us is a huge gift and Julie you also experienced imposter syndrome in a in a slightly different nuanced way um, let's mm. let's, just, let's just talk about that for a minute uh, how did you uh, feel? How did you feel in terms of um, I'm not the real child? Um, you know all the things, the aspects of uh, imposter syndrome and and having to pass. Uh, mm. One of the things about being adopted from the 19, late 1950s and 60s is, in that era of adoption history, uh, the agencies were trying to match babies in looks and background to their adoptive families. So while I had the same coloring um, and uh, physical characteristics as my adoptive family, uh, quite often people would say, oh, you look just like your mother. And I inwardly I'd say, mm-hmm. well, of course, of course I don't, but um, if people see that, then um, that's fine. And I was very polite about it. Um, I came to find out once I met my birth mother that, indeed, she does look, uh, in a lot of ways, like my adoptive mom. So, definitely, I, I could have passed for my adoptive mom's biological daughter. But it in, imposed on me this feeling of, I am not living the life that um, I was born into, and so, therefore, the existence that I'm going about from day to day is a bit of a, uh, a a bit of a lie. Uh, we talked earlier about um, me not being as Irish as I thought I was. My family was 
a big Irish Catholic family, and we celebrated everything to do about Irish culture. We've been to Ireland many times. Um, I married a man with an Irish last name. And inwardly, when I was embarked on my adoption search, I worried. Um, am I, what am I going to find out? Am I going to find out I'm not Irish? And how am I going to deal with that, mm. with my identity? Uh, I did find out that there is Scotch-Irish. It's a smaller percentage, certainly, than um, I was making myself out to be. But that whole reality was definitely part of uh, feeling an imposter. Yes. And I think, you know, you took this identity, you carried it with you. I am Irish. And people, I think, don't realize the implications of that. You may have made life choices based on your concept of yourself, your self-concept as being Irish. I married an Irish man. Maybe, you know, that was, you know, a felt connection. Obviously, that's also love. But, you know, the, the sense that we're we're acting on false information. And I think the other thing that you allude to about, um, you know, saying you hear comments all the time, you look like your your dad. Um, and I actually thought the same thing about the chief. Um, but, you know, and, and, and I was the only one in my family I shared with my father brown eyes. And so there's that politeness. You have to be polite and say, oh, thank you very much. Meanwhile, you're instantly transported back in your mind to, I'm not related to these people. I actually have no biological connection to these people. I mean, there's a reverberation that occurs. And I think a relinquishment of that politeness is one of the big reliefs of learning um, of learning identity. I, I wanted... I wanted to also address something that both of you experienced, uh, and I did too, which is the fantasy that your biological mm -hmm. and, and adoptive families are going to magically mm -hmm. collapse into one another and love one another and embrace one another as you do. How has mm -hmm. that been, J Jacob, um, in, you know, in for, for you, um, busting that myth? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the big one. Um, my fantasy was definitely more related to my biological mother and my relationship with her, um, which, I mean, listeners will find in the book uh, not the case. Uh, this time in, that I'm here, for example, um, I'm not going to see her. I have no plans of seeing her. And yeah, you can <laughs> look more into the book uh, for reasons as to why that is. I think my... Um, What's been really great about my adoptive mom, especially, is she came down to surprise me and met um, several members of my biological family here. And I was able to be the, the, the interpreter there between English and Spanish. Um, and it was, it was, it was a dream come true. I think my fantasy was fulfilled <laughs> in that mm -hmm. regard. Since, since then, however, um, it's been, I think I really have now let go of mm -hmm. that that notion that I can bring the two together and have it just be some kind of harmonious, eternal relationship. I think they both are just in their own little worlds with me now as part of them both, but uh, I can't, I had to lower my expectations there significantly. Um, yes. They still ask about each other and we'll share some pictures on WhatsApp and some videos here and there, but um, I think right now I'm content with just knowing that I have two and they have... Uh, knowledge of each other, and they 
they can ask me about each other whenever they want. And we've worked out, I think, a pretty positive um, relationship, uh, just a yeah. triangle there of, 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 of support and love, which has been, yes. uh, which has been great. It's a reconciliation of the two families. Uh, as we said in the beginning, I really had mm. great admiration for your mother to come down, um, to come mm. to Colombia, and I thought it was very unifying and healing. Julie, you, uh, we have just a few minutes left. Well, actually, we have less than that. We have astoundingly little time left. Um, Julie, you did experience what you call a level of tolerance for um, your, your adoptive parents' reaction, if it hadn't been for that plot twist that we can't reveal at the end of your book, um, <laughs> they, they may never have accepted, but you did have finally that experience of acceptance. And how was that for you? And just a, a briefly. Oh, it's definitely it was like some of the points in Jacob's book. It's like the plot twisted um, dramatically uh, towards the end uh, of my search and my my mother, who was very reluctant uh, to have me going down this path, even at middle age, uh, turned on a dime from being uh, a welcome supporter of the, the most of the family. My relationship with both of my um, birth parents' families is similar to Jacob's. Um, they we- continue to ask about one another, and I share information geographically. Everyone's good. Everyone. good. Julie, we, I'm sorry, we have to finish. Um, we're closing okay. now. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The truth is necessary to cultivate our sense of individualism and belonging. That from Jacob, I think we can all agree this has been so valuable. Thank you both, Jacob and Julie, for being here. Thank you to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, to our producer, Robert Cialino, and to most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe, and it's the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Till next week... You can find Jacob Taylor Moschetto on social media and Julie Ryan McGue as well. Thank you both. Until next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you.